This is Jeff Orge, the president of Gateway Seminary, welcoming you to the Lead On podcast, where each week we talk about practical issues related to ministry leadership in churches and ministry organizations today. Uh, Today I'd like to talk with you about a word that is often used and I think uh, widely misunderstood, and that is the word discipleship. Now, because I'm going to say some things that uh, uh, may sound like I'm speaking in some way negatively against this concept, let's underscore this at the beginning. I am totally committed to making disciples and to the concept of discipleship. What I'm going to be talking about today are some problems I have with the current definitions of the word and some current expressions of what uh, Christian leaders and churches think discipleship means. And so because I'm offering some corrective to how the word is used today and how the concept is understood today, it might be misunderstood to think that I don't see this as a great priority of the church. Actually, it's the central priority of what we're supposed to be doing as believers and as Christian leaders. And so today I want to talk about discipleship and offer some correctives about what's being taught and what's currently understood about what that word means and what the process of making disciples looks like. And I want to really focus in on, on just a couple of key areas on the podcast. First of all, I want to talk about defining discipleship. Now, I actually wrote a blog about this a few weeks ago and got a good bit of response back, a lot of affirmation, frankly, from pe- people who were uh, glad I kind of brought some balance to the perspective. So let's talk about defining discipleship, and I'm going to borrow some from that blog and amplify it just a bit. Uh, first of all, some leaders today are defining discipleship as turning marginally committed Christians into fully devoted followers of Jesus. In other words, discipleship is about taking uh, marginally committed Christians or perhaps uh, newer Christian believers and turning them into fully devoted followers of Jesus. Now, that's a worthy goal. I certainly want marginally committed Christians to develop into fully devoted followers of Jesus. Everyone would be glad for that to happen. But that process is a truncated definition of discipleship. A better definition of discipleship is turning non-Christians into maturing Christians. Now that is a fundamental and significant difference. Today, many people say that discipleship is turning marginally committed Christians into, into fully devoted followers or maturing Christians. I'm saying that discipleship is better defined as turning non-Christians into maturing Christians. Now, I want to give you a couple of reasons why this distinction is so significant. First of all, uh, it's significant because it follows the New Testament pattern. In the New Testament, whether it was Jesus in his earthly ministry or the uh, apostles and other leaders in the examples in Acts, making disciples always began with communicating the gospel to non-Christians and seeing some of them come to faith in Jesus. I've written a book called The Case for Antioch and spent a good bit of time in that book uh, working out what a church looks like when it starts with no Christians. Uh, that's what happened in Antioch. Uh, a few preachers, scattered by persecution, arrived in Antioch and started sharing the gospel. So there was this smattering or this small collection of Christian preachers that came. 
But once they started preaching the gospel, the gospel started spreading rapidly among the non-Christian Gentile community of Antioch, and out of that, then, the, the teaching ministry resulted, and a church was fully formed. So, yes, there is a prominent role in the story of Antioch for the teaching ministry and for the leaders who guided that. Uh, there is prominent in, uh, information in Acts 11 and 13 about worship services and how those were conducted in Antioch, and so that was a part of the discipleship process. But don't miss how it all started. It all started with the gospel being shared with non-Christians. So whether you're talking about Jesus coming through life and calling people to follow him, and in that process they turned into disciples, or whether you're talking about examples from Acts like the, book of, like, uh, the church at Antioch, the, the, the pattern of discipleship always starts with non-Christians becoming Christians and then growing into maturing Christians or fully devoted followers of Jesus. I could go on to say that uh, the disciple-making mandate actually starts with non-Christians, and you know that you've reached a place where you have fully matured or fully maturing Christians when they join you on the missional responsibility to reach more non-Christians with the gospel. So one of the reasons why I advocate for this definition is because I think it fits a biblical model uh, much better than the truncated definition of turning marginal Christians into devoted Christians. But a second reason is just the practical reason. If discipleship is only about turning weak Christians into strong Christians, then the disciple, discipleship process is a dead-end street on which the church dies after the current generation of superbelievers passes from the scene. Now just think about it from a practical perspective. If you have a church of 100 people and you say to them next Sunday, our mandate is disciple-making, so I'm going to divide all of you into 10 groups, and every one of those 10 groups is going to go into a five-year process of Bible study and personal development so that, you so that you result in becoming fully devoted followers of Jesus. Let's say you do that, and you re re repeat that process beautifully for five years, and then that's it. You haven't won anyone to faith in Christ during that time. You've been discipling your people, meaning that you're turning weaker Christians into stronger Christians. And at the end of five years, you've not made any impact in reaching the lost for Christ. Now expand that out for uh, 25 or 40 years. When those 100 super Christians that you've created through your disciple-making process die, so does your church. Disciple-making is not about turning strong Christian or weak Christians into strong Christians as the end in itself. If that's the case, the church will only last one generation. Making disciples always starts with leading lost people to salvation and then to spiritual growth to the point that they then become believers who are on mission with the gospel back to other non-Christians. This is the process of discipleship that assures that the church will continue on and on and on into the future. A couple of recent conversations have brought this to light to me. Uh, one leader shared that he had a pastor who came to him uh, and reported, our church has decided that we're going to do life together. He said, well, what does that mean? Well, he said, we're going to uh, group our church, and it wasn't a large church, but he said, we're going to group our church into uh, groups of four couples each. And those four couples and the ones that have children and their children are going to do life together. 
Uh, they're going to share meals together. They're going to do Bible study together. They're going to uh, go on vacation together or do recreation together. As many things as possible uh, that they can do, they're going to do life together. And he said, well, what, what's, your, what's your ultimate outcome you're hoping for? And he said, well, when we do life together, uh, we hope to accomplish two things. One, we hope to have really depth of community and depth of relationship that we don't currently enjoy. And second, we hope to have um, uh, an intensification of our, of our Bible study and our, our Bible knowledge and, and of what we're learning and applying because of the iron sharpening iron effect these relationships will have. Well, that all sounds really good. But then the person asked the pastor this question, well, now, will these groups be open to inviting new people to be a part of the group uh, and to experience this depth of fellowship and to engage the Bible in, the, in this serious way? And he said, oh, no, no, these have to be closed groups so that uh, the relationships can really develop because once you start bringing new people in, then, then that sort of defeats the purpose of forming these, these, these really tight-knit groups. And when, asked this, when he heard that, the, my friend then asked the pastor the follow-up question, well, then... How does any new Christian ever come into your church? And that's where the conversation stopped. Because the pastor said, you know, we, we, we believe God will bring the people that he wants to our church, and, and we're just going to focus on life together, relationships and depth of Bible study. And, and if God brings other people, you know, that's great, but, but really we don't see that as our, our primary, the, the primary focus of the kind of church that, that we're going to become. Man, that's just so sad to me because this is a church that's decided to super aggressively turn inward in the name of discipleship and community building so that they can do life together. Another thing that really puzzles me today is this buzzword community, especially as it relates to discipleship. You know, I, I've enjoyed Christian community all of my life, and part of that community has always been that we were a community that saw itself as being outwardly focused, that we didn't come together to meet each other's needs. We came together to meet the needs of others. Uh, you know, this, this kind of truncated model of discipleship, which wears the mask of true community, is missing the principles that Jesus taught about giving ourselves away. He said, when you give your life away, you find your life. When you serve others, you're, you're elevated in your stature. And so Christian community is not about coming together in this kind of super discipleship model. Christian community is about coming together for the purpose of being a blessing uh, to others, of of, of communicating the gospel to others, of meeting the needs of others, of serving others as an expression of our community, and finding the fullness of what it means to live together in Christian community by that means. Now, obviously, I'm trying to bring some balance here. There needs to be depth of relationship, and there needs to be depth of Bible study and Bible application in church ministries and in small groups and in other groups that are evident in church ministry. But making that the sum total focus and calling that discipleship is really going to cause the church to decline and to die after one generation. So uh, discipleship is not about turning weaker Christians into stronger Christians. It's not about taking nominally or marginally committed Christians and making them fully devoted followers of Jesus. The discipleship process both as it's described in the Bible and as it's practically applied, means that we start by winning non-Christians to faith in Jesus and then developing them into maturing believers or maturing Christians who join us in our missional responsibility to other non-Christians. Now, international missionaries do this all the time. 
They know the disciple-making mandate begins with winning people to faith in Jesus. When a missionary goes into an unreached people group or an unreached place where there are no Christians and starts the, quote, disciple-making process, they cannot start the disciple-making process by gathering the believers together, putting them in small groups, and doing community. It just doesn't work because there are no Christians. And so the disciple-making process starts by winning the lost of faith in Jesus Christ in those settings. And then as those people are led to faith, they are taught, they are brought into community, they're developed in relationship, but that's not the end-all, be-all, because if it was... After that first crop of new believers come to faith in Christ, the church would eventually die out again in that context. No, the disciple-making process starts by winning people to faith in Christ, is facilitated by teaching ministry, which then includes community building, and then continues the process by reaching more new people for Christ and incorporating them into this ever-continuing process of making disciples. So if international missionaries see this so clearly in the context in which they're assigned to work, why is it that we struggle so much with this idea in the American church? Well, a lot of reasons for that, but quite frankly, we struggle with it because we're so inept at evangelism and we're so weak at sharing our faith that we want to avoid that and simply focus on what we know we can do, which is, quote, make disciples and the definition that I've tried to correct. So church planters or excuse me, international missionaries understand this, and people who are planting churches in other cultures and contexts understand this. Does it also work even though here in the U.S.? Sure it does. When I moved to Portland, Oregon to plant a church in 1989, I had a small cadre of believers that wanted to help me do this, but very quickly we started reaching out to people who were not yet Christians, and our responsibility was to lead them to faith in Christ and incorporate them into the disciple-making process. Uh, It wasn't to take the small cadre of Christians I had and turn them into a super church. It was to take that small cadre of Christians and launch them into the community as part of their continuing discipleship to help reach more and more people with the gospel. And what happened in our new church was people came to faith in Christ. And then they got incorporated into our disciple-making process, and then some of them emerged as leaders. And today, after all these years, we can see the generations of impact that have been made by maintaining this process of always starting the disciple-making movement or disciple-making process or method by reaching lost people. So that's one half or one part of what I want to talk about today in terms of uh, some adjustment to what we mean with the idea of disciple-making. Another idea I want to talk about is uh, that discipleship requires baptism, and I choose that word carefully, requires baptism. I never dreamed that I would be a part of a denomination that has Baptist in its name that would question the importance of or the the validity of of baptism as foundational to making disciples. You know, when Jesus gave his most succinct instruction about making disciples, we call that the Great Commission. He told Christians to baptize converts as an initial step of obedience to him and as a part of their disciple-making, a part of the disciple-making process. Now, why did Jesus instruct us that baptism was a part of making disciples? Well, several reasons. First, uh, baptism is the clearest biblical method for a public profession of faith. Now, we sometimes say, well, you make a profession of faith by walking forward in a service or by signing a commitment card or by saying a prayer, and those things may have validity in their context. But Jesus said, the clearest way to make a public declaration of your faith in me is by being baptized, by publicly going before other people and allowing yourself to experience this common uh, act 
of baptism. Jesus said that's the clearest and most biblical method for a public profession of faith. Baptism is also how a person openly declares their allegiance to Jesus. Baptism is when you stop being a secret Christian or a private Christian and you become a public Christian. It's where you stand up in front of other people and say, I follow Jesus. And in our context, it's mostly done in the, in the presence of other believers, large numbers of them sometimes, and so it gives us a chance to identify with those believers in uh, a common experience of saying, I stand with you as well as with Jesus. Now, baptism is also the best means of identifying with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, if you want to say it this way, of identifying with the core aspects of the gospel. It's also the best way for believers to identify, as I've already said, with other believers, but taking it a step beyond that, with a covenantal association with other believers. In other words, uh, many churches require baptism, a public declaration of, of faith through baptism, for church membership. Uh, most Baptist churches do. And so when you say, I'm being baptized, you're saying, I'm doing the most biblical method possible of professing my faith in Jesus. I'm identifying with his death, burial, and resurrection. I am saying that I stand with all of you believers who are watching me be baptized in a common experience that we all share. And then you're also saying, I enter into a covenantal relationship with a particular group of believers known as a particular church because I want to not only be baptized as a representation of my Christian faith, but I want to be baptized as a statement of my willingness to enter into covenantal association with you. Baptism then is this common experience that binds believers together and makes them public followers of Jesus and cements, if you will, our identity as Christians in our culture. Now, Counting baptisms, or excuse me, the, the, the idea of being baptized has somehow been devalued or made optional in some churches these days. It's like, well, you can be a follower of Jesus, but you don't really have to be baptized, but you'll want to someday, or you may want to consider it in the future, but it's not really a requirement right now. Man, that is not at all the way I understand what the Bible teaches or what Baptists have always taught about the issue or subject of baptism. So why is it that people are minimizing baptism these days? Well, one reason is because bapt counting baptisms is considered prideful by some, and it's a, they think it's a misguided method of measuring their evangelistic success or evangelistic effectiveness. They think that counting baptisms is just another method of keeping score, and they disdain anything that smacks of that kind of fleshly ministry attempts or fleshly ministry measurements. Well, boy, you certainly can misuse baptism in those ways. It's possible that, uh, you know, baptisms can be a source of pride or a source of just sort of keeping spiritual score, but they don't have to be. Baptisms can also be used as a very clear measure of the evangelistic effectiveness of your church and of the evangelistic uh, impact your church is making in its community. So while you can view them in a negative light, why don't you instead back off and view them in a positive light and say, you know, baptisms are a clear evidence that people are coming to faith in Christ because while people can come to faith in Christ without being baptized, almost no one wants to be baptized just as a religious act. They only want to do that as a result of a private commitment they've made to Jesus. And so baptism does become one good measuring tool for what it means to have evangelistic effectiveness. Another reason that people are minimizing baptism is because they've lost sight of its powerful witness opportunity, uh, the witness itself of what baptism actually accomplishes. 
For example, some churches are saying, well, we baptize once a year. We go to the beach or we go to the lake or, or we go to some other special setting and, and we just baptize once a year. Now, I realize that with all the church planting going on today and all the difficulty of finding a pool of water, and I know there's seasonal issues. Some of you in the north of part of the United States are in cold country. It's hard to baptize outside in certain seasons, and you may not even have it inside baptistry if you're a new church plant. I get all that. But let me speak clearly about why it's important to baptize regularly and to baptize as a witness to people who are viewing baptism. It's because baptism itself is a witness of the gospel. When you baptize someone, you baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And when you baptize someone, you say generally before you baptize them that this represents the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And when you baptize someone, it speaks to everyone who's watching that that person has made a commitment and it causes them to question, have I made that commitment? If I have, why haven't I been baptized? It also witnesses the gospel as being real or evident or applicable to everyone. When a church is baptizing and they baptize a 12-year-old boy and then a 14-year-old girl and then a 25-year-old man and then a 35-year-old woman and then a 70-year-old man and a 55-year-old woman, and they see people baptized from different ethnicities or different socioeconomic backgrounds or different cultural perspectives. When people see this, it witnesses to them and says, the gospel is for everyone. That could even include me. And so I, I lost track of how many times when I was a pastor that the first time a child in our church wanted to talk to me or to their parents about the gospel was after they saw baptism. When they saw baptism, they said, what does that mean? Why did that happen? And it gives you the opportunity to explain the gospel. Now, that doesn't mean every child who sees a baptism needs to be saved and baptized in the next few minutes, but it does mean that they're having the opportunity to see the gospel portrayed and to ask questions about what it means. Not just children, adults do too. To see the witness of baptism as, an, as a powerful reminder of the gospel and of their need to consider their own relationship with Jesus Christ. That's why, as a pastor... I tried to baptize as many Sundays as possible. I would rather have one baptism every Sunday than wait and have them all on the last Sunday of the month and have four on that Sunday. You say, well, that's a lot of hassle. You've got to fill the baptistry. You've got to warm the water. You've got to provide the towels. You've got to provide the clothing. Uh, you, you've got to arrange the worship service to include this aspect of, 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 uh, of worship. I get all that. But that's why I wanted to do baptism as often as possible because it was a witness of the gospel and, what the, and, and the impact that it made. Now, as a pastor, I did not have baptisms every Sunday, and I did not um, delay people from being baptized in order to uh, string along this, the uh, number of Sundays. And not, no, no manipulation like that. This is not something we're doing to try to uh, you know, make ourselves look good or have an overly uh, rigid strategy. I'm simply saying that if it was possible, I wanted to have the baptisms in a regular routine on a frequent basis so that people could see people being baptized as a part of what our church was accomplishing. And the other thing that this did was it continually reminded people that our church was growing, that we were reaching people, and that we were supposed to be reaching people, and it was a good thing to reach out to new people. And frequent baptisms uh, communicated that message. Now, let me... Uh, Go back to the beginning and summarize what I've tried to communicate today. I am completely committed to discipleship as a priority, if not the priority of our ministries. It's what churches are supposed to do. It's at the core of what Jesus said to accomplish in the Great Commission. I'm simply saying that our truncated definition of discipleship, that we turn weak Christians into strong Christians or marginal Christians into devoted Christians, is not a true definition of discipleship.
Discipleship is about turning non-Christians into maturing or missional Christians. It's about taking non-Christians and moving them to the point that they're fully devoted followers of Jesus, assisting us to reach out to more non-Christians and to expand God's kingdom by that means. And I'm also saying that as a part of this, baptism is a key aspect of discipleship. It's not optional, it's a requirement. It's not something you delay or put off or do it only when it's convenient. It's something that's supposed to be an, ever, an ongoing, consistent, continuing part of the worship experience of your church so that people see regularly the opportunity, uh, they regularly see the gospel being portrayed for them. And for all the reasons I talked about in the podcast, this can be an, a, an important addition to the disciple-making process in your church. So let's make disciples. That's what it's about. No one questions that. The fact that we're doing it poorly in the American church, I'm sure that's also not up for debate. We all can recognize the deficiencies here, and we need to make some significant improvements. But before we can improve the practice, we have to get the right definition and understand some of the core issues of what it means to make disciples, and I've tried to at least highlight a couple of those today. So let's go make disciples. Lead on.